2: Message today is entitled Snake Bitten. Of course, we're going back, and I'd like to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There are illusions that we need to break in our hearts. Those illusions cause us to think that reality is where we live physically. In reality, what is most important is what happens in the realm of the spirit and not in the realm of our physical flesh. We're accustomed to judging reality by what we can touch and taste and see. Right now, snowing outside, it's cold. But you all know that there is a place down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where It's warm, and the sun's out, and we could be in bathing suits, stretched out, getting some rays. We all know that's reality, but we can't see it. We can't just talking about it. I can smell the sea. I can feel the sand in my toes. But I'm not there. I'm here. Well, in the same way, there is a place called heaven there's a man called Jesus. You don't see him. That doesn't make him any less real. And we know that all men and all women, all boys and all girls, are going to a judgment seat. I said to a Muslim man last night, we began to talk about heaven and, and judgment. And I said to him, you know, everyone, every religion leads us to the same place. You looked at me. I said, yes, you're going to the same place I'm going. You're a Muslim and I'm a Christian. We're going to the same place. It's called the judgment bar of God. And at that judgment bar, everyone will be judged. Are you ready to face that judgment? And he said, I have more good things to do. I said, are you sure you can do enough good things to be judged righteous? He said, no, I'm not really sure. I said, we need to talk sometime about Jesus. Jesus gave him a dream. Jesus stopped him in a dream as he was driving with his family. Had him get out of the van and go over to a little body of water, took him in his clothes into that body of water and baptized him, brought him back, put him in his van, and he drove on. And he said to me, was that Jesus? I said, yes, that was Jesus. That's the Jesus you're going to face on the judgment day. He will be your judge. And then he got busy and he had to run. We're all going to judgment. So today I'm going to say some things to you that may be uncomfortable but it's part of what has to be faced in order to recognize and break any illusions we might carry about our own righteousness and about what's going to happen on that day. Let's read first in Romans, the third chapter. I'm going to begin with verse 10. This is Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous or no one innocent. It's dikasune. There's no one innocent. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Do You understand that if the poison of vipers is on their lips, that means they're snakes. And I'm going to show you in the scripture that the condition of the unsaved man or woman is that of a viper. A snake. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. The way of peace they do not know. The word peace, shalom, meaning all provision. In other words, they're always going to walk in poverty of spirit. They don't know what it is to have the peace of God in their heart. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. No one will be made righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Until there comes a consciousness of sin into our hearts, and we go to the very depth of that wickedness, and we understand the vileness of our heart, We cannot be saved because, look, if I'm outside in my backyard and I look over in the neighbor's yard, we has a swimming pool and I see him struggling and and drowning and I run across, I dive into his pool and I pull him over to the side. If he's taken in some water, he's going to thank me profusely because he knows he was going to die. On the other hand, if I see him in his pool, I dive in and I pull him over to the side. And he wasn't drowning or didn't know he was drowning. He will have me arrested for assault. So if you don't think you're drowning in the vileness of this world and someone tries to rescue you, you're going to get angry with them. You're going to say, I'm doing great on my own. Leave me alone. Get your hands off me. On the other hand, if you begin to sense the vileness of your own heart, you know you're a serpent, and someone comes to rescue you, you're going to have a great overflowing of joy that someone would risk grabbing a hold of you and pulling you out before you die. Most of us in America think we can be saved as an added benefit to an already wonderful life. When we come to Jesus Christ, we recognize the vileness of our heart and we become the church. Now, I want to share a story with you. It's found in Numbers, the 21st chapter. The children of Israel were coming up out of the wilderness. They were coming now just five camping spots. You know, they moved over 40 times. There were five camping spots out of taking the promised land. They were coming close. And as they were coming up out, They went through the Negev, that's the southern part. It's down by the Dead Sea. They were coming up out of that desperate wilderness. It is a a horrible wilderness, the wilderness of Zin. It's dry, there's no water. They complained against God. God judged them. Then they began to sing songs of praise, and their praise was, Spring up a well. Spring up a well, and as they sang praises, God brought forth water in the desert for them. As they came up, a Canaanite king in the Negev said, these children of Israel are not going to come and invade our land. And so they did a guerrilla movement. There were over a million children of Israel, and the stragglers were behind And they sent an army out and they captured some of them and they killed many of the children of Israel. Moses, he's now lost Aaron. Aaron has died. Miriam, his sister, has died. He knows that he's also not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. And now to have these Canaanites come and kill them, it was an utterly devastating experience. I just need to stop for a minute. Following Jesus Christ is not a bed of roses. We're going to suffer following him. Believe me, if we went to China or we went to Central Africa today, where men and women have lost their wives and husbands, they've lost their children, they've been murdered, their homes have been burned, they've lost everything they owned, they're now with the clothing on their back and a mat to sleep on, laying out in the open on the runways while French soldiers are being flown in to protect them, then we could talk about suffering. Or Christians who are being put into vans and driven to a hospital, and just before they get to the hospital, strapped on the gurney and organs removed while they are still alive. And those organs sold on the market simply because they're Christians. So some rich European can have new kidneys or new lungs and then the kill shot and they're gone. Those people have husbands and wives and children, uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters. We need to be sharing in the suffering of God's people. The children of Israel face their loss. They say, Lord, if you will let us destroy these Canaanites, we will utterly destroy their cities. And God told Moses, go destroy them. And in the power of God, they went out and utterly defeated this whole nation that was standing opposed to them. And now they feel pumped up in the power of a mighty army. Look, they're fielding. An army of over 600,000 men. And they come to Edom. And Moses says, we can't, we can't touch Edom. And they're saying they're in our way. Let's go get them. And Moses said, no, God gave Edom. He gave Esau this property. We're going to have to go the long way around because Edom said, you cannot cross our nation. So now they can't take the most direct route. Instead, they have to take this long trip through the burning desert in order to get to their goal. Some of you have been taking long journeys through bitter desert because God said you can't go there. Sometimes it feels to me like my whole life has been a long journey around the Edomites. And the people grew impatient and angry. In verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. In the Hebrew, it's translated more correctly. In the King James Version, it says, and we detest this light food. We detest these snacks that you're giving us of manna. We detest this, this what is it? These Twinkies. We want something substantial. We want to put our, our teeth into chicken. We want beef. We want real food, not this manna. We're told in the scriptures that they tested God. That's what it says in 1st Corinthians, the 10th chapter. They tested God, meaning They were saying, if you were God, you wouldn't treat us this way. If you were God, you would have taken care of us. If you were God, you wouldn't make us go through this long journey around Edom. You would have let us just go in and destroy them. The scriptures tell us that the devil is a liar. He's a cheater. He's a thief. He's a murderer. The scriptures call the devil a dragon. He is the dragon. And all of the mythology of dragons comes directly out of the Garden of Eden and the reality of this serpent. Now, what you need to understand is that the devil, in his glory as created by God, was the most powerful of all of the angels. And he was called a seraphim. The seraphim were the guard angels. There are different orders of angels. The seraphim are the guard angels. They are the military angels of God. They are the warriors of God. And they were serpentine in nature. I've never seen one. There are several descriptions, however, in the scriptures. You'll find one in Isaiah 6.2 and another in Isaiah 6.6, 6, where the seraphim is described in the serpentine with wings, several sets of wings. They are the powerful army of God. And it was this commander-in-chief of the seraphims, who was called Lucifer, who rebelled against God. This is the dragon, the seraphim, that appeared in the Garden of Eden that we call a serpent. Now, what happened after he rebelled against God, we don't know, but obviously his appearance was changed. And the glory of God was removed from him. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, I'll begin with verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels. And Michael is now the chief seraphim. The chief warrior angel of God. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon The transformation that happened in Satan or Lucifer was that of a dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan or the accuser. The first characteristic of the serpent is that he accuses, he has bitterness of heart. He was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. Satan can no longer accuse you before God. He has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, no longer will they hiss like a serpent. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. So verse 6 of chapter 21 in Numbers. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. That word venomous in the Hebrew, it's literally then the Lord sent seraph snakes among them. Chapter 21, verse 6 of Numbers the Lord sent seraph snakes. Among them. It also means burning. Because when a person was bitten by these poison snakes, those snakes are still in that desert. A person would become beat red. Their heart would begin to beat very rapidly. They would sweat. They felt like they were on fire. And it was terminal. They died. A very painful death. The Lord sent these seraph snakes or these burning snakes, these poisonous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And the snake was made by the way of polished brass. It shone brilliantly. It looked like fire. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. And then the Israelites moved on. Now, what I want you to see is back here in the book of Genesis, in the third chapter, now the serpent, literally now the, the hisser, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Satan's favorite literary device is irony. Irony is when you, you say something that is the opposite of the truth. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. There was a time in my life when I was very much into science fiction. And this is before I understood the ways of the Lord. And my favorite stories were always about dragons. And always in science fiction. You're not to look a dragon in the eye. And you're not to speak to a dragon because the dragon is so cunning that regardless of what you say to a dragon, he will deceive you. And he will gain power over you. Now, science fiction writers are not far off. Those of you who have ever read science fiction, you know that the dragon is so cunning that you must not even speak to him. She was speaking freely with the dragon and being completely deceived. He said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, look, if you eat this fruit, God won't decide what's right and wrong for you anymore. You're going to decide for yourself. Today you hear it being said a little differently. Today you hear it seeing. Be all that you can be. Be the best you can be. It's simply a reversion of what Satan said to Eve. It's still the same cunning dragon speaking. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. They were transformed into the likeness of serpents in the spirit realm. They became snakes. They became children of the devil. Now, what is absolutely necessary for us to understand is that we must either be children of the devil, determining for ourselves what is right and wrong under the power and influence of the seraph, the dragon, or we must be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We were originally in the likeness of Christ, We were created in the likeness of God. We were clothed in His glory. When they sinned against God, they left the lover of their soul and joined together with the one who hated them. And when they did so, they lost that covering and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. They hid from God like a serpent, hiding in the brushes, hiding in the leaves. Now, we have to be absolutely clear about where we've come from, that we have come from being the children of God to being children of the devil. And if we are not once more transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we will have no future. That means we must come to terms with the vileness of the serpent and recognize that there's nothing good in us except that which is placed there by Jesus. And we have to give up all of the illusions that we're special because we're Americans. We have to give up the illusion that because we're Americans, we can do anything we want to do. That is of the serpent. We must give up the illusion that we're in charge of our own lives. For we are all going to the judgment bar of God. And until we come to terms with this serpent, and if any of you today doubt the serpent, what'd you do this week when somebody displeased you? Did you hiss at them in your soul? Did you grow angry? That's a remnant of the serpent that is yet within you. Did you lie this week? Did you steal this week? It is of the serpent. Did God speak to you this week and you said, not now? Did you feast on violence? Did you hold accusations in your heart against someone else? All of that is of the serpent nature. And it must be fully acknowledged. We cannot be transformed into the likeness of Jesus until we see the depths to which we have fallen. There is within every one of us the potential to be a Hitler. But by the grace of God, we would be utterly destructive to all of those around us. We would use them. We would abuse them. And we would cast them away when we were done with them. It is only in Jesus that we can be transformed and changed. This promise is given in Genesis 3.15. It's spoken to the serpent. It's spoken to the dragon, to the seraph. He says, I will put enmity. I will put hatred. Between you and the woman, between you and the church. Do you understand? You have no identity in Jesus outside of the church. There was an ark in Noah's day, and only those who entered into the ark were saved. There is another ark. The ark today is the church. And if you don't enter into the church, you cannot be saved. Because Jesus is the head of the church. The church is Jesus. The church are the ecclesia, the ones who are called out of the world. Now, the church is not just a local body. There is an invisible church in the world. There are many dear brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have a body to gather together with, but they are a part of Jesus Christ, so they are part of the church. The church is the body of Christ. They are those people who have been transformed into the likeness of Jesus, who are no longer in the likeness of the serpent, who have been transformed and changed. Faith comes by the preaching of the Word. That's why we read the Scriptures, because faith comes by reading this Word. Ephesians tells us that we are washed by the Word. What are we washed of? The serpent nature is washed out of us as we read the Word. If you're not reading A fair amount of Scripture every day, you're starving to death in the Spirit. And that gives the serpent an opportunity to grow in your soul. We must be washed in the Spirit by the Word. He says, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I have many times been bitten by the snake. I am a snake-bitten follower of Jesus Christ. I have rebelled many times against the way of the Lord. Sin is always volitional. It's always something we volunteer ourselves. I hear some people say, I fell into sin, Pastor. I say, no, no, wait a minute. You don't fall into sin. You jump into sin. Nobody makes you sin. If you sin, it's because you chose. Be responsible for your actions. My definition of a man is one who is willing to take full responsibility for his actions. Who makes no excuses. He takes responsibility. A woman is a person, a girl, who's grown up. Who now makes no more excuses does not excuse her anger or bitterness, does not excuse her lack of interest in spiritual things, but rather is willing to get in touch with the vileness of her character and cry out to Jesus until she's transformed into his likeness. This is the process we're in, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. This promise that he will create anger, hatred in our heart toward evil, Catherine was exactly right. This is something we have to actively step into. So that when temptation comes to us, we actively oppose it. When Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, what did he do? He ran. He fled. So when someone suggests some kind of sin, any kind of wickedness, when it rises up in our own hearts, we cry out to God and we say, oh God, I hate this. Now the truth is going to be some sin you, you may still love. And that's where this promise becomes so powerful. Because now you confess to God that you still love your sin. And you ask Jesus to put hatred in your heart toward that sin. This is an active, ongoing Process. So if you still hear the hiss of the serpent in your heart, you confess it before Jesus and you ask him to take the hiss out of your heart because it's a burning seraph that will destroy you. It's a terminal disease. Do you understand? Sin is terminal. If you come today and you say, Pastor, I just heard this last week, as one man did this week for me, a a dear friend, he came to me and he said, Pastor, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I have a lymphoma cancer. There's no cure. My first question to him was, how long do you have? He looked at me and he said, you go right to the point, don't you? I said, well, let's not play games. You have a terminal disease. What are you going to do with the life you have remaining? We were all born with a terminal disease called sin. And it will kill you. And unless we're willing to come to terms. And if you've ever read Kubler-Ross's material on, on death and dying, you know that one of the stages of death and dying is denial. And then there's bargaining, God, if you'll heal me, I'll do this and this and this. You know If, if you'll just do what I ask Jesus, then I'll be willing to do what you ask me to do. You know if you're bargaining like that with God that the terminal disease is working out its death in you, and that you're going to soon be gone. And if you deny your condition, then you know you're terminal disease is going to take your life. Look, a decision to leave your snake skin and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus is a conscious decision. And it must be made in cold blood. And making the decision does not cause temptation to leave you alone. In fact, it puts a bullseye on you. And the devil says, you're not going to leave me. You are not going to walk out of being a snake. You belong to me. You are a viper like I am. And your response must be, in the name of Jesus, I will no longer be a viper. I belong to the Lord Jesus, and I renounce you, Satan, and I will have nothing to do with you. Now be gone in the name of Jesus. And inevitably, those who have come to the National Prayer Chapel testify that as soon as they make that decision, all kinds of vile dreams begin to trouble them through the night. Sexually unclean dreams. All kinds of oppressions begin to come because the devil is absolutely determined, you will not leave me. You belong to me. Please understand, the devil is very possessive. But we serve a God who is also very jealous. And he wants us. So we're told, in the book of Matthew, let me read it for you. Chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers. These were the religious people of the day, and he was saying, you're just snakes. You're vipers. You've got down all the outward forms of religion, but you've never been changed on the inside. You've just a dressed-up snake. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, please understand, if you remain in the serpent nature, there will be a fire in you that will burn unto destruction. But if you are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, you will also have fire in you. And that fire will make you into the likeness of Jesus. Look, there's no way you're going to avoid the fire. You're either going to have the fire on the last day that will burn you in hell, or you're going to have the fire of God burning inside of you that will wash and purify and cleanse and change and make you into the image of God. Look, I wish I could tell you today, look, have a happy life. Live however you'd like. Like, everything's going to be okay. Be the best you can be. If I said that to you, I'd be lying to you. There is a heaven to win and a hell to miss. And you are actively involved in that fight for whether you go to the heaven or the hell. And every one of us will go based on our own decisions. You understand, God has no grandkids. God has no grandchildren. You are responsible directly to him. So when we come, First John, the third chapter, verse 7. 1 John, the third chapter, verse 7 and forward. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is innocent, just as he is innocent, or righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know the children of, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So in Ephesians, before we hear the glorious truth, of being raised up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. We need to clearly hear that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Do you understand? You're a spirit. None of you in this room do what your hand tells you to do. You always tell your hand what to do. No one ever does what their feet tells them to do. Your feet do what your spirit tells it to do. Now we have soul, and soul and spirit are different. Soul is our personality. We all have different personalities. We like different things. We view the world differently. It's been lots of fun for me to watch some of the children in this church become real people. Little little Peter, is he's a real little person now. He's not a baby anymore. He's a full-blown personality is breaking out. I see these little twins back here. And already I see differences in their personality. Now, I'm not sure which one's which yet. But soon, by personality, I'll be able to differentiate which is which. Just watch them a moment. I'll bet mom and dad already know which is which. Not by appearance, necessarily, but by personality. But behind the soul is a spirit. And out of that spirit flows everything that happens in my soul. That spirit we also call character. Character is the shape of the soul. So if you're dishonest, if you're bitter, if you're angry, if you're vengeful, if you're indifferent, all of that is flowing out of your spirit. You recognize that God is a spirit. And he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. That's what the word says. So if that spirit within us is the spirit of darkness, how can we be saved? If the spirit of dishonesty flows in our heart, if the spirit of cheating, of lust, If the spirit of darkness flows in our heart, how can we be saved? We must be transformed and we must be changed. And each of us has to carefully examine our hearts and make certain that we have been transformed and that no longer are there any handles in our lives that Satan can grab a hold of and pull us back into his camp. Now, he'll lie to you and he'll say, You're not really a follower of Jesus. You're still mine. And you say, no, I'm not. In the name of Jesus, I no longer serve you. I renounce you. Can you say that today? If Jesus right now walked through this door, he wouldn't bother opening it. he just walked through it. And he came forward. And he said, okay, now you cannot lie to me. I know everything about you. Today is your last chance. I want you to come before me. And I'm either going to send you to the right, into the kingdom of heaven, or into the left, into the fires of hell, based on whether you are a serpent or whether you've been transformed into my likeness. Which way would you go today? What would His judgment be of you? See, it doesn't matter if you have accepted Jesus, it matters whether Jesus will accept you. No longer an excuse. You face Jesus. and you come to him and you say, "Jesus." before you can even pass judgment on me, I know. I am totally unworthy. I know. My heart keeps wanting to go to darkness. And Jesus is going to say to you, but does it? Does it? No, I know it doesn't. You belong to me. You need to hear today the word of Jesus to your heart. You need to hear him say you belong to me. And if you can't hear him say, you belong to me, you better get in the prayer closet and do whatever is necessary until you hear him clearly say to you, you belong to me. I claim you as my own. O oh Lord, mighty God of heaven, such love and mercy that you would take out of us the snake character, the burning of sin, and instead you would put in our hearts the burning love and devotion. Lord, you don't want a lukewarm people. You want a people who are on fire, who burn with love and commitment and passion for your kingdom. Lord, make it plain to us. Lord, take away all the illusions. Let us see ourselves as you see us. Let there be no false condemnation in our hearts. Let us see the truth. Let us see you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen.
0: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thy The power and the glory
2: Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel, and we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Also visit
1: us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.